refiner's fire set apart for you, my Savior, ready to do your will. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. That which we have just sung about is revival. Being the kind of people that God wants us to be for his honor and for his glory. You know, there's a difference between evangelism and revival. Evangelism is getting the gospel out. Going into all the world with the good news of salvation. Reaching the lost, the unsaved, for Christ. We ought to get excited about evangelism. Evangelism is the assignment that God has given to us so that we might impact our world for the cause of Christ. Aren't you excited about bell ringers? It's wonderful to know that someone has been born again into the family of God. That's evangelism. But revival is something different. Revival is an outpouring of God's Spirit in our lives. Renewing of God's people. A sanctification, a setting apart for a sacred service ready to do thy will. In the United States of America, there have been two times in our history that have been called revivals. If you Google Great Awakening, you will discover that all of a sudden during the 1700s and then about 100 years later during the 1800s, God's people got burdened, wanted to be a fire for, for him. Wikipedia. How many of you are familiar with Wikipedia? All right, it's an online source. Wikipedia says this, speaking of the first great awakening. It resulted from powerful preaching that deeply affected listeners, already church members, with a deep sense of personal guilt and salvation by Christ. Pulling away from ritual and ceremony, the great awakening made religion intensely personal to the average person by creating a deep sense of spiritual guilt because of his redemption. If you are here this morning and know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you have been redeemed. Amen? The question is, what difference does that make in your life? How has the Holy Spirit of God taken that truth and encouraged you to be holy? Set apart for you, my Savior, like we just sang, ready to do your will. Wikipedia talks about the second great awakening. And it simply says, in the United States, the second great, great awakening in the 1800s was the second great religious revival in United States history and consisted of renewed personal salvation experienced in revival meetings. Then it talks about Charles Finney, who was one of the key leaders of that awakening. And it says, for him, Charles Finney, a revival was not a miracle, but a change of mindset that was ultimately a matter for the individual's free will. His revival meanings created anxiety in the penitent's mind that one could only save his or her whole soul by submission to the will of God. Ready to do your will. You have a hymn book in front of you? Pull it out, will you please? 
That's that blue thing that sits on the front of the pews. All right? There's a hymn in our hymn book, hymn number 295. 295. And it's a hymn of commitment. You know it. Revive us again. I want to sing this this morning. I only want to sing the last stanza. Because the last stanza talks about what is necessary in our lives. Stanza 4, revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thine the glory, right? Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Thine the glory. Revive us again. You sing better when you're standing. Stand with me, will you please? I know you got your Bibles on your laps. I, I know. Stand. Stands of four. Here we go. Revive us again. Fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. said thank you please be seated now Nehemiah 9 so you can put your hymn books back on the back of the pew all right Nehemiah 9 now as we have studied Nehemiah we have discovered that a group came and told Nehemiah what was going on in Jerusalem the walls were falling down the people were discouraged and they asked Nehemiah for their help so Nehemiah gets permission to leave his employment, goes back to Jerusalem, goes down to Jerusalem actually, and there he leads the people in rebuilding the walls, and they did that in 52 days. Can you imagine? It took four months to remodel this place. 52 days the walls were built. I submit to you that was the easy part. Because here in chapter 9, we discover that Nehemiah is not only concerned about the walls, he's concerned about the witness of God's people. He's concerned that the people understand how they got to where they are. He wants the people to know that there are consequences for sin in their lives. Now, I tried to think of another block that we could use. Do you know how difficult it is to come up with a P word for revival? Can anyone think of one? I couldn't. So I came up with a different P word that I think helps us understand what is necessary for revival. And that is the word perturbed. Now, wait a minute. You see, when we make changes in our lives, a lot of times it's because we finally get perturbed. I finally get perturbed that I'm too heavy. I make a change in my life. Connie finally gets perturbed that there's too much dust. Now, she knows I'm allergic to dust. I keep, it, keep telling her she's trying to kill me. 
We finally get perturbed with the car that we have and we trade it in and get a new one. Right? You know, when God's people finally get perturbed with their sin and understand that their relationship before God is not what he wants it to be, there will be a difference in our lives. The problem is, we're too busy building walls. We're too busy remodeling stuff. We're too busy involved in this, that, or the other thing. We're too busy checking off our lists. And the problem is we've never gotten serious about sin. We're not perturbed enough. We haven't come to the place that it really bothers us. And we're willing to do something about it. Now I want to remind you just a little bit about the history of Israel. And you have seen a timeline something like this before. And we went back to 2000 B.C. where Abraham was called. But in the history, as we move forward, we find out that the kingdom was divided. And it was divided between north and south. The north was known as Israel. The south kingdom was known as Judah. Now, in the north kingdom, there were ten northern tribes. And as you look at the rulers of those tribes, there were 19 kings in the northern kingdom, and none of them. According to the word of God, none of them were righteous. Assyria came in and took over the north kingdom in 722 and took them into captivity. Now you look at the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was known as Judah, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And in the southern tribes, there were 29 kings and one queen. Did you remember that there was a queen of Israel? And only eight of them were righteous. And because of their sin, God sent Babylon in and took them captive. And you can read about that in Daniel. He was one of the first ones to be taken captive down to Babylon. Second Chronicles chapter 36 talks about the last three kings, Jehoiakim did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoiachin did evil in the sight of the Lord. Zedekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then it says, therefore the Lord. He finally got fed up with it. And that's exactly what has happened to these people. Now here in Nehemiah chapter 9, the people begin to understand the consequences of their sin. Jump down with me, will you please, to verse 36. Nehemiah 9, 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Do you see there the consequence of sin? Now, we could go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we could find how Nehemiah in his first prayer confessed the sins of Israel and of the fathers. But here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we discover that the people are starting to realize we are where we are because of sin. 
May I ask you this morning, where are you in your spiritual life? Are you enjoying your spiritual life? Are you being blessed in your spiritual life? Are you content in your spiritual life? Are you joyous in your spiritual life? If not, maybe it's because of sin. Keep your finger here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and turn to James. James chapter 5, will you please? New Testament book. If you have a Bible like mine, it's page 1,291. If you don't, you're on your own. James chapter 5. Verse 13. You there? James 5, 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Did you notice there what verse 16 says? Therefore, let him confess his sins. There's consequence to sin, folks. We find it in Nehemiah's day. We find it in our day. And you and I must understand that if there is going to be revival in our lives, then we must confess our sins and understand the seriousness of our sins and really get perturbed about them. Because if we don't, we're just going to be plain. Now, this is not really a fun message to preach. It really isn't. But it's a message that I believe is necessary for all of us. We come to the communion table once a month, right? And as we come to the communion table, we, se we celebrate the given body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And what does it say that we are to do during the communion service? Examine ourselves, right? Anybody know what 1 John 1, 9 says? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Aren't you thankful for that verse? Amen? But confession there is seeing ourselves like God sees us. How does God see you? Now, we like to say, and he does, he sees us as his beloved. I'm thankful for that. He sees us as one on whom his love is shed. He sees us as those who have been born again into the family of God, covered with the blood of Christ. Amen and amen, right? Isn't that great? He sees us as redeemed. He sees us as 
purchased. But I wonder as he sees us in our daily lives, does he see us as walking in the light, as he is in the light and have fellowshipping because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin? Are we perturbed enough to do something about it? What difference does it make in our lives? You know, as you read down through Scripture, it doesn't take you very long to discover consequences of sin. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. Consequence of sin. Cain killed Abel. Consequence of sin. The next major character you have is Noah. You know why God flooded the earth? Sin. Consequence. He looked down and he said, look at these wicked people. I'm going to destroy them all. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Aren't you thankful for grace? God giving to us what we do not deserve. Nehemiah chapter 9. Look with me at verse 1. Nehemiah 9 verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, and I'll stop right there. You'll wonder what this month is. You can move to the last verse of chapter 7 and find out it's the seventh month. If you do the math, you'll discover pretty quickly that this is one year since the people came to Nehemiah back in chapter 1. The month identified in chapter 1 is the seventh month. Here we have the eighth. So we're one year later. A year later, what's happening? The people of Israel were for, assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, I'll just tell you that a quarter of a day, that's three hours. Okay? So somebody read from them, for, to them from the scriptures for three hours, and then for three hours they stood and confessed their sins and worshiped God. That's pretty good service. I didn't hear any amens. <laughs> but that's, that's what it, how, how their lives were affected. Some of us can't even get up for Sunday school. These people got serious. Now let's talk just a little bit about sin. What is sin? How do we define it? Well, if we were to go to James, James chapter 4, verse 17, we would find this. Therefore, to him that knows to do good and does it not, for him it is sin. If you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. Right? Simple, right? You tell your kids, clean their room. They know to clean their room. They don't clean their room. It's what? You tell your kids to clean their room. 
They don't clean their room? It's what? Thank you. All right. For them to know to do good and don't do it, it's sin, right? That's, that's what the Bible says. Let me give you another definition out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is a violation of the law. Not too many weeks ago, I got pulled over here in Battle Creek. Now, wait a minute. Let me tell the whole story. Driving to the church, I'm glad I had plenty of time. And I looked in my rearview mirror, and all of a sudden, there are different lights than I'm used to seeing in my rearview mirror. So I pulled into a side street and pulled behind me. The officer got out of his car, didn't ask for my license or registration. But I said to him, I said, sir, what's the problem? He said, you were texting. I said, I wasn't texting. I was talking on my phone, but I wasn't texting. He said, let me see your phone. I showed him my phone. He said, can you open your texts? I opened my text. I wasn't texting. Amen is right. Sin is lawlessness, a violation of the law. Now, the law is good. Romans 7 tells us that the law brought us to sin. Without the law, we wouldn't have known what coveting was. Without the law, we wouldn't know what lying is. We would all do that just very naturally. But Romans 7 says that the law is good because it taught us what sin's about, right? The law begins with our relationship with God, right? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your might, right? That identifies the first four commandments. One God, no graven images, don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the other six. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't covet. What am I leaving out? What? Don't kill him. Huh? Murder, don't kill anybody, yeah. What? Yeah, okay. Don't bear false witness. Okay. Sin is lawlessness. Okay? So it's violating God's truth. Now, there is a New Testament word that is used for sin. That's the word harmatia. And the word harmatia means missing the mark. And it has the idea of not recognizing God's perfection, which is to be evidenced in our lives. I quote it often, and it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, but I think it's relevant here. First Peter, as obedient children, right? Because he who has called us is holy, so be ye holy, right? Don't miss the mark. Don't miss the mark. Now, when you do miss the mark, what do you do? I already quoted 1 John 1, 9 for you, right? Confess our sins, and he is what? Faithful, just, to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right. right? Don't miss, when you miss the mark, this is what you do. Now, when you miss the mark, you've got to see your sin like God sees it. God does not see our sin as an oops. 
God does not see our sin as something that just kind of was a slip up. God sees our sin as a volational, individual act of missing the mark. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and do what? Turn from their wicked way. Confess, right? Then will I hear for heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land, right? So, so this is what it's all about. Now, what did these people do? How did it affect their lives? What was going on? Well, in Nehemiah chapter 9, we discover a few things. Verse 1, they were assembled with fasting. Fasting. Fasting is putting aside food, spending time with God, spending time in fellowship with God. Fasting. Giving up a regular important function to concentrate on God. Fasting. Getting away from the ordinary to focus on the extraordinary. That's fasting. What these people did is they got perturbed enough about their sin, understanding the consequences that they had, that they decided we need to concentrate on our relationship with God. And because our lives are so full, we're going to put something else aside in order to do that. Most of the time, it's a meal. Now, I could miss a few meals. Thank you for not saying amen. But it's not just missing meals. It's concentrating on God. It's worshiping God. It's focusing on who he is and what he wants to accomplish in our lives. It's understanding that if our relationship with God is going to get any better, we'd better get alone with God. Connie and I have been married for 42 years. It's been a great 42 years. We have enjoyed each other's company. We are best friends. Every once in a while, Connie will say to me, Tom, you've really been busy. Can you spend some time with me? Now, that's the nice translation of what she says. What she says is, I need a little bit of you. I need for you to take time to be with me so that we can make sure we are connected together. Is it not that way with the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father? Should we not take time out of our schedules to make sure we are connected with Him and if we are going to get perturbed about where we are, the only way to do that is find out where he is and understand that's where he wants us to be. So they were involved in fasting. They were also involved 
in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is exactly what it sounds like. It is cloth that our sacks are built out of. If you go to the book of Genesis, you discover that Joseph's brothers who came to Egypt because there was a famine in the land, left with food, remember that? And the food was put in sackcloth, put in bags. We might see it as kind of like burlap. Although this sackcloth was made out of goat's hide. You ever pet a goat? It's not soft, kind of wiry. And it was worn because people understood the necessity of reminding themselves of an eternal commitment. Now, now this is not like, and this ain't going to happen, this is not like, I tell you, if Michigan State wins next Saturday over Ohio State, I'll wear a Michigan State hat. That ain't going to happen. But a lot of times, that's how we identify sackcloth, right? It's just something little, no big deal. We say we're going to do it. No. Sackcloth is that which drives us to our knees and is a public demonstration of repentance. Understanding that what God did to bring us to himself cost him something and it ought to cost us something. Now I'm not suggesting that we all go out and buy burlap and make clothes. But I am suggesting that we get perturbed. Perturbed enough to affect us. Fasting, sackcloth. You notice what else they did? They had earth on their heads. Dirt. Now the earth on their heads spoke of humility. It was an understanding of where they came from and a recognizing of their subordination to a holy God. Adam was formed of the what? Dust of the earth, right? Eve got it better. She was formed out of a rib that Adam had. Talks about humility. Humble yourselves, Peter tells us, in the sight of God and he will lift you up. Hmm? I joined a gym on Friday. Planet Fitness. Ten bucks to join, ten bucks a month. I joined the gym. I walked into the gym. There's a huge sign that says, no guilt zone. That's me. I want to go someplace where there's no guilt. Reality is, if we're going to get serious with God, there's going to be a time of recognizing that we are not where God wants us to be. 
And there is going to be a time of humility in our lives. Understanding under whose authority we are to live. It was interesting to me as I read Job chapter 2 this week. Job's friends approached him, and you know what their motive was. Their motive was to get Job to recognize how sinful he was. But all you have to do is read chapter 1 and find out that Job was righteous. God said so. And they approached Job with earth on their heads. Humility. And then I think it's interesting as you read that passage, they sat in silence for seven days. I mean, they didn't even say, please pass the ketchup. Sat in silence for some. That's humility. And that's what's necessary in, in our lives. And then what did they do? Verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They separated themselves. Why? Because they knew who owned them. They understand to whom they belong. They recognized who had called them. And they understood that in that, his faithfulness had led them And he had done great things for them. Amen? Not an easy message to preach. Revival's tough. But as happened in the 1700s and then 1800s, I believe that if God's people would allow God to impact their lives, the same kind of spirit outflowing could take place in 2015-16 in the United States of America. Amen? But it has to start with you and it has to start with me. And I believe we've got to get a little perturbed. <laughs> Understanding where we are before a holy God and being willing to do something for his honor and his glory. Now next week, we're going to talk about how the people recognized God working in their lives. And it was a love for their word, for his word, a look at his faithfulness, and a longing to seal a covenant with the Holy God. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you again for your word, truth for our lives. Take these things, use them for your glory. And Father, we'll thank you for all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.